Let me start by asking you guys this question. When it comes to your relationships with each other, should you have low expectations? Should you have high expectations? Or should you have no expectation at all? Okay? That's the question we're talking about this morning. Think about this when you think about your kids. Do you have low, high, or no expectations of all, at all of your children? When you get married, do you have any expectations? When you're at work, do you have any expectations? Do you have expectations of a stranger? So here's what I would say. If you, if you say that you have no expectations in any one of these relationships, I would say you're probably not being honest with yourself. And the reason being is we all have expectations of one another, even as, if it's as simple as you don't get to put your hands on me or you're not going to speak to me a certain way. We all have some level of expectation. So let me tell you where this came from. Back about 10 years ago, I was on Facebook. I'm in a Facebook group that was about relationships. And a friend of mine named TJ started a conversation about men who are unfaithful to their wives. And in this conversation, a lot of men were saying, you know, because there was something lacking in their wives. Maybe it was they didn't look a certain way, so they decided to slip outside the marriage to go be with some who, someone who looked a certain way. Or it could be that they were not being talked to a certain way and they needed to get fulfillment from somewhere else. This is the thing that started me down this path of this particular conversation. So this is a conversation that literally is a decade or more in the making for me to have this conversation. So the question again was, should you have expectations of your spouse? And then we started thinking about our own children, our boys, um, and particularly our oldest son. Should we have expectations of him in terms of what he does in his life? And one thing I can tell you, there, are, there were plenty of expectations for him. One being, and we told both of our, our children, you're going to college. Uh, and if you decide not to go to college, you're going to the military, or you're going somewhere because you can't live in our house if you're not going to college. Those were the expectations. And there are other expectations, but that was just one that comes to mind. So after decades of studying and thought and prayers and consideration, here's what I've learned. We should have high expectations. High expectations of one another, and Jesus has high expectations of us. Not only that, we should be willing to meet the expectations that other people have of us. And at the same time, we should be willing to accept each other with our expectations not being met. All of these things go together. Does Jesus have expectations? Yes. And if he does, what does that look like? So that's what we're going to explore today, okay? So let's get to the scriptures. So in today's scripture, we see Jesus at the beginning of his ministry as he starts with his ministry in Galilee among the Jews. His message begins to spread and people from all over the region start to come to him. Noticeably, he, is, he has gained followers from Syria and from the region known as the Decapolis and beyond. For the sake of reference, the Decapolis is a term used to describe 10 towns. 
and they are east of Galilee. These are areas that have been disputed lands for hundreds of years. The area had been occupied by the Babylonians and the Persians before being ruled by numerous other groups. So during the time of Jesus, the area was primarily occupied by Greeks and Romans. And these people and any non-Jew were considered collectively to be the Gentiles. For the sake of reference, it should be noted that the people who were coming to Jesus were not around the corner. They were not his neighbors. They did not live on the same street. These people were walking and leaving their homes and their livelihoods to follow and to find Jesus. To get to the southern tip of Syria from Galilee is approximately 50 to 80 miles. And depending on where someone may have come from in the Decapolis, they may have journeyed over 100 miles to find Jesus. Even the people who came from Judea had to walk at least 50 plus miles in order to get to Jesus. So this was not an easy choice for anyone to make, to come and to find this man who was healing people. These Gentiles who were coming did not come because they believed in the God of the Jews. In fact, uh, these people had been centuries fighting with the Jews. The Gentiles had fought many wars over this land, so these people hated each other. They were not by any means friends. So it's important to note that the people coming together, they were coming because they were seeking to find this man who was healing people. And they didn't mind being around the people that they hated. So our scripture for today is the beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is recognized as the first sermon of Jesus that is recorded in the Bible. And at this point in his ministry, he has assembled his core group of disciples and has started preaching and teaching throughout the land. So at the beginning of this text, Jesus draws away from the crowd. I want you guys to picture this. He draws away from the crowd and he goes up on a mountain. The disciples follow him but the crowds follow them as well. So how do we know that this is what actually happened? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it's clear that during this sermon, it wasn't just the disciples that were there. It was also the crowd. And, the, and, and let's keep in mind again, who was in the crowd? There were Jews and Gentiles. But not only that, these were his initial followers. These are the initial, initial followers of Christ because literally they picked up their lives and they decided to follow him. So, why is this important? Why, why did I start this sermon at the end of chapter 4? The question is, who did God call? Did God call just a few people? Did he just call a select group? That might have been the case at one point, but at this point, Jesus is coming and he's doing a new thing. 
He is calling everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've been through. All of the healing that Jesus did, he healed people with all kinds of, of issues. So it doesn't matter what you're coming to him with. He is here to heal you, and he is calling on you. So as we go through this message today, I want you to see how Jesus lived out the very same things he is commanding us to do. And here is our first example. Jesus is demonstrating the great, the great commission right here. He is calling on anyone who is willing to follow him, not just the Jews, not just the people of Galilee. He is talking to people from different geographic regions and cultures, and he's calling all nations into relationship with him and to be his disciples. So I spent a lot of time talking again with other ministers, and Joel and I have been having this conversation as well about the context. Who, is, who are we talking to? Okay, what's the context of the story, and who is the story for? Okay, this story right here is particularly for everyone at, at any point in time. And so when you think about our own lives, the same is true. Whatever Jesus does, we should do also, not just for a certain group of people, all of us. Okay, so that's our beginning. Now, before I get too deep into this message, I want to lay down some framework for this message. I believe in love being the basis of everything. So I want to say right now, if you don't like what I'm saying this morning, know that I say this in love, and it's love that is where I come from. It is the country I belong to. So just know that first, okay? There are two commandments that you should govern, should govern human existence. There are two particular parts of the commandments that should govern our relationships, love and relationship. When we look at the two greatest commandments, love God and love thy neighbor as thyself, these two aspects are present. Love is mentioned in both commands, but in addition to that, both commands are relationships. The first is our relationship with our creator, and the second is with each other. So before we go any further, just let us review the foundational pieces of love, relationship, and grace. So love is who God is and what he does. He chose to love us first. Nonetheless, his love is unconditional and irrevocable. There is nothing you can do to earn it, escape it, or lose it. You don't even have to believe in God to receive it. Love is a state of being, and it is something that is done. I have taught my children this time and time again, and both, both of my children can tell you so. God, their dad always tells them, love is both a noun and a verb. It is something you are, and it is something that you do. So as for relationships, there's a big difference between his love for you and you having a relationship with him. Relationships are conditional. You cannot force someone to be in a relationship with you, and God doesn't either. But in order for you to have a relationship with him, we have to make a decision to leave our homes, 
to leave our livelihoods and give up making ourselves as the priority. In Luke 14 and 26, Jesus says, and I paraphrase, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus doesn't mean this literally. He's just making a very harsh example to make the point that he has to be the main priority. He has to be number one. So it is critical that we establish our relationship with Jesus. Once you accept him as your Lord and Savior, your relationship with God becomes unconditional and irrevocable. You cannot earn it and you cannot lose it. So then there's grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is the doorway to the relationship. Jesus is that doorway. Grace is who grace is, and it is also what he does. He chooses to extend grace to us. Upon acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, his grace becomes unconditional and irrevocable. You cannot earn it. You cannot lose it. Grace is a state of being, and it is something that is done. So let's put, his, put this all together. Love is a process that leads to relationships. God loves us freely. Jesus extends grace to us freely. And all of this is so that we can have a relationship with him. This is the basis for the rest of this message. So let me say this. And I told, I told my son this recently. My, my son and I have been doing a lot of talking. And um, one of the things that I told him, I said, no matter how upset or frustrated I get with you, nothing, this has nothing to do with my relationship with you. You are my son. You will always be my son. And there is nothing on earth that you can earn, you couldn't earn it, and you can't lose it. My wife, when I married my wife, that was meant to be forever. That's not meant to be some maybe today, maybe not tomorrow. That's not the case. No, when I married her, I married her knowing that she couldn't, she didn't earn it, and she surely can't lose it. My love for her and my relationship with my wife and my children is unconditional and irrevocable. So, let us go on. So now let's get to the meat of this. Now let me make it abundantly clear. Nothing I'm about to say takes away from the unmerited favor that you have through Christ. As I was preparing for this message, I took the time to consider, should I share the more difficult part of this message first or should I save it for the last? Well, I decided to deal with the hard part first. That being said, we're going to look at this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, backwards. Okay, we're going to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. So here it is. Jesus has high expectations. He has high expectations of us. And thus, we should have high expectations of ourselves and others. Now, let's go to the text. And we'll pick up the scriptures at verse 11. If y'all can put that up, um, verse 11, if you can. Um, 
verse 11. We're going to make this observation. Um, in, verses, in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and other all kinds of evil things falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In this, Jesus is clearly calling us to live like him. Jesus is clearly asking us to live and speak like him. He is calling us to be the light of the world so that God receives his glory. As I mentioned before, this was the beginning of his ministry, and he is preparing his followers for everything he is about to teach them. He's calling them to follow him in every single way. What's beautiful about this is he's putting us back on the hook, okay? And what I mean by that is your eternal life is not dependent on what you do. That part has nothing to do with anything. Your eternal life merely comes from your acceptance of him. But after the fact, your life should change. Your heart should change because God is calling you to be something different. He is calling you to be that light on a stand. He is calling you so that people see him in you. That doesn't mean that you get to sit down and do nothing. It means you have something that you ought to be doing. I say this to my children that I have expectations of them. Now, sure, I do. But at the same time, they don't have to accomplish them. Again, our relationship is not based on that. You're my child. That's all that matters. You do not have to actually fulfill the expectations that I give. Now, you should want to. That's a different story. Now, um, there was one part of this that I did not think about. I didn't think about it to this morning. Um, and when you look at what Jesus says, and if you're really thinking about it, you go, he says you're going to be persecuted in his name. Who wants to be persecuted? And then he turns around and he says, you should, be, uh, you should rejoice and be glad. So who wants to go in through their life <laughs> and, and be persecuted because of things that you do and say? And why would you be glad in it? Okay, well, here's the, I'll tell you this. Every time I'm in a meeting and someone says something that clearly needs to be corrected, trust me, I have no problem standing up and say, oh, wait a minute. That needs to be corrected. Now, sure, I'm going to get looked bad on because I'm the one that's, st that's standing up to say something that's out, you know, somebody might go, why is, why is he saying something? 
No, because something is wrong and you need to stand up. One of my students is here uh, uh, today and she knows and she's been in a meeting where we did this. We were having a meeting and we were talking about some finances and we have a club and the club has money invested. So during the treasury report, I get up and I say, um, you see this $300 here on this line right here? I'm going to take this money and I'm going to go pay some bills with it and I'll give it back to y'all in a couple weeks. All right, everybody in favor say aye. And sure enough, guess what? All the students said aye. <laughs> Okay, so I had to stop him and I said, did y'all just not hear what I just said? I just said, I'm about to embezzle money. Not only am I about to embezzle money, because you said, I, you are, you are a part of it. We're all going to jail. <laughs> Who does that? So no, you do need to stand up and make correction when correction is needed. We don't need to just sit by and see people do things wrong and live lives out of line with God and just sit there and go, I ain't, ain't going to say nothing. No, in fact, um, it was some time ago we had a sermon and we were looking at, I believe it was uh, Proverbs, and, uh, uh, and God is saying to us, if you don't admonish or say something to your friend, you, they might as well be your enemy. You don't love them if you would let them do bad things and you have nothing to say. No, that's not what we do. So Jesus wants us to live up to standards, but he also wants us to hold people accountable to standards as well. Okay, so. Now let's be clear about something else. There's a difference between being a follower of Christ and being his disciple. If you are a believer and have come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your eternal salvation is sealed. But now Jesus wants to sanctify you and mold you into his disciple. And this is where his expectations come in. So at the end of his earthly ministry, at the Last Supper, Jesus twice reminds them to be and do what he has shared. He mentioned it in John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And again, he tells them in John 15, 12 through 16, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one other than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, and if you do as I command, no longer will I call you servant, for servant does, a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus is again making it clear that he is teaching us how to love and how to be in relationships with our neighbors. Remember this, love God, love thy neighbor as thyself. After spending years in ministry with his disciples and the crowds that have followed him, Jesus is demonstrating the two 
greatest commandments. He is showing us how to love and how to have relationships with God and with our neighbors. So let's look at some parallels between what Jesus told them on the Sermon of the Mount and what he said to them in the Last Supper, beginning and end of his, of his ministry. In Matthew 5, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, let's look at John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He told us what to expect. When, he lived, when we live like him, and, and then he showed us exactly what it meant to be persecuted when he died for us. Love one another as I have loved you. If we are being persecuted because of our relationship with Christ, that means we are loving each other as he loved us. We are truly being his disciples because people see him in us. They see how we love people through our relationships. They see how we love when others don't want our love. Love one another as I have loved you. Lastly, in John, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus, again, is sharing his expectation that we will follow him. But here, he calls us friends. Friends. This is a relationship. We have graduated from servant, and now we're being called friends. Not only, not only are we friends, but we're also his siblings. We're his adopted family. So Jesus is not talking to us as if we're strangers. We are family. Going back, to, going back a step to go back to John, Jesus ties the act of loving one another to discipleship. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This ties back to the Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted on my account. On my account. This is love and this is relationship. So quick side note. When we allow Jesus to sanctify us, we bear fruit. We are able to call upon the Father in his name. This relationship comes with power. So in a relationship, relationships are give and take, okay? So you, you, you get something, you take something, right? So in what we're getting out of this relationship, we are granted the power that comes with being in a relationship with Christ. This is not a selfish type of power. This is a power that permeates and intersects our relationships with each other. It brings meaning when we forgive one another. It allows us to suffer in the most extreme circumstance and still be able to give God praise. It fuels our purposes and our work. We can access the power to do God's work and truly be the new city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Love and relationship, it breeds power. But we have to do as he commanded us and to live out his expectation. This is important. We shouldn't just sit and act like, you know, because we believe in Jesus, what else is there? No, 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 no. This relationship is meant for you to use. It's meant to be a part of your everyday life. 
is meant to come out your mouth. It's meant to come out in what you do. It's meant to come out in how you think. It's meant to be a full body experience. Mind, body, and spirit, all of it tied together, all connected to Jesus Christ. So now, as I mentioned earlier, we're gonna work our way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go back to the beginning when Jesus first opens up. Jesus begins his sermon and speaks directly to our human condition. Verses 3 to 10, Jesus is speaking in third person. The scripture uses the term those and they. But let's go a little bit closer. Verses 3 through 5 are also states of being. These are examples of places we might find ourselves. Poor in spirit, in mourning, meekness, which is being able to endure pain and suffering. These are all states of existence. Qualities that we may have from time to time. And sometimes those qualities may be permanent, some things that we do throughout our lives. Or maybe we are in one of these states right now. We may even find ourselves in these states in the future. These are just a few examples because they are not the only states of existence that we may find ourselves in. What's listed here in what is collectively known as the Beatitudes was not meant to be an exhaustive list. Jesus is making a point and he wants us to understand it. It is not meant to be a legalistic point that we just read and take on the surface. He is making a point, but we'll get to that in a minute. So Jesus is presenting to us a formula. So let's go a little bit further, verses 6 through 10. 6 through 10 are primarily things that we do, in particular, being merciful, a peacemaker, standing up for righteousness. These are actions. These are things that we do. So Jesus is presenting to us a type of formula, if you will. As human beings, we are who God created us to be, but we are also the things that we do. Sounds familiar? Love, a state of being, something that you do. Grace, a state of being, something that you do. Now hold on to that. Now let's put these scriptures back together. Verses 3 ends with, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The use of the same term twice creates a literary device known as inclusioso, inclusio, which means to bracket. It places everything in the bracket into a type of envelope of similar material. So when we look at the end of every verse, we hear Jesus saying, God is with you. God will take care of you. Listen again. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn shall be comforted. The meek shall inherit the earth. The ones who seek righteousness shall be satisfied. The merciful shall receive mercy. The peacemaker shall be called sons of God. And the ones who are persecuted for righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What makes all of this similar is the fact that Jesus is saying to us and saying to his followers 
that God is with you regardless of your state of being or what you do. This is grace. I don't know what your thoughts are about grace is, but just maybe this will deepen your thoughts on grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is through grace that we are saved. But here's what that says to me. It is my unmerited relationship with Christ that saves me. Jesus does not owe me anything, but he held out his hand and he offered me an eternal relationship with him. And on top of that, he offers the relationship with no strings attached. And again, it does not matter who I am. It does not matter what family I was born to. It doesn't matter what I do or what I say or how I feel. Being in a relationship with Christ means that he will just sit with you. In my lowest place, Jesus will just sit and wait. It is important for us to understand this particular part. And the reason being, I have many friends who have been in mourning. Some of my friends have been in mourning for years, some in decades. And there's nothing that you can say to that person to say, hey, it's time to get over that. That is the absolute thing you should never say to somebody who is in mourning. There is nothing you can do or say that is going to solve that problem. At the end of the day, Jesus is just sitting there with them, holding their hand. And if we're being like him and we are loving each other as he loved us, then that's what we need to do sometimes. We need to just be able to hold someone's hand and just sit there. I remember one time a couple years ago, my wife and I have been married for 25 years. She uh, was having a bad day about something. Thank you. She was having a bad day about something. And she said to me, you know what? I don't need you to say nothing. I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to be here. I just need you to listen to me. So, as a good husband would, I did exactly that. And afterwards, she said, I feel better now. Sometimes that's what we got to do is just sit and let God sit with us and just be for a moment. Now, it's important that we know that these two things are not together, expectation and God sitting with us. All right? I'm going to come to that. So just know that God's grace endures. God's love endures. So in this inclusio, inclusio, God is covering us in love and grace. The Beatitudes are a love letter from God saying that he will never leave us. He will never break up with us. It doesn't matter how bad you have screwed up in your life. God is with you. So now, some of you may be saying to yourself, you just said that God has expectations of us. So how is it that he extends this grace to us? It seems like it doesn't fit. So how is it that God can extend grace to, to me and there is nothing tied to it? Help me make sense of this. Okay. His expectation of us is mutually exclusive from his unconditional acceptance of us. And that's a hard, time, a hard thing for, for people to reconcile, that God can have expectations for you and his unconditional acceptance be two totally different things. So let's look at what's not being said. 
So when you look at verse 10 to 11, verse 10 goes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then 11, blessed are you when others revile you. What's missing there is a but. What's missing there is the conjunction being used to say that these two concepts are tied together. There is no but. Jesus is clearly saying that there is grace for you and I have expectations. There's no but in between these two things. Jesus can have expectations while still covering you in grace. The grace is unconditional. It is not based on your performance of an expectation. Jesus doesn't say to you, you're not saved if you are poor in spirit. Jesus does not say that you need to get over mourning. Jesus didn't say that he's going to break up with you if you're not merciful. We are human, and we are broken humans. Jesus understands this, and thus he is willing to just be with us and to accept us as we are. Now let me say this, and this would be an entirely different sermon. There is a room for responsibility and accountability. So when you do decide who you are and what you want to do in your life, you can expect that Jesus is going to hold you accountable to that. And you should expect that other people around you will hold you accountable. When you get married, part of the marriage, sermon, uh, the marriage service is two families coming together and being witness to this union and both sides saying that we are committed to this union and we're going to do and help this couple out to be everything that God wants them to be as a couple. It is a, con a covenant relationship that we all have when we witness a marriage. So let me just say again, you are responsible as well to ensure that this couple makes it. That's what marriage is about. That's what covenant relationships are about. It is about holding people accountable. But that is another message. So, now, in conclusion, I have to share with you the light bulb that went off with me um, when this came together. Although there was no way I could preach this entire sermon, uh, the, the entire sermon on the mount, there's one extra piece that stands out here. In the verse after the ones we looked at today, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His fulfillment of the law is made richer and deeper by this discussion we had today. Jesus has his expectations, and the law represents God's expectations of humanity. Jesus lived out God's expectations perfectly and ended it by dying for it. He gave his life for his friends. He did everything he commanded us to do. And although we may not do it perfectly, he showed us by living as one of us that we are fully capable of living and loving as he did. So this is the part where it gets challenging. It's not just the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law. He's saying to us, you can do it with me. You can't do it on your own, but you can do it with me. You can. And so we need to love one another as he loved us, and we need to live the life that he taught us how to live. Jesus loved us first. He loved us when we didn't, when we didn't even want to. 
He offered us grace when we didn't deserve it. And understanding this, we know that his yoke on us is easy. His expectations on us is easy. Accept him, love him, follow him. Accept each other, love each other, cherish the relationships we have with one another. What I'm saying right now, I know is not easy, but it is accomplishable through the grace-filled relationship we have with Christ. I don't have time to do everything I wanted to do in this message, but I will tell you this. Please take the time. Go back and read the entire Sermon on the Mount. Take the time to read through the Last Supper. Read these things, and I pray that Jesus will challenge you as you read it. And showing you, and it's not just about showing you how broken you are. It is about him showing you how to live and how to be in relationship with other people. So I hope you are challenged by this message. If this is comfortable you, to you, good. If you heard something new today, if you heard nothing new today, there's nothing easy about having expectations and providing grace at the same time. There's nothing easy about those things. But if today you heard something that you didn't like, I encourage you to reach out to me. I encourage you to challenge me on this. I'm not the author of this. I'm merely a messenger. So if I screwed up this message, I want you, I want to know about it. I want you to tell me that I screwed up with this message. And at the end of the day, we are here to follow Christ, not Gary Robinson. So I don't have to be the expert. So if there is something that you feel like I missed in this, please come and share it with me. I would love for you to do that. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to share the difficult message that if we are truly your disciples, that we will be persecuted. No one likes to have expectations. It's not in our nature to like it. But Lord, nonetheless, you shared your expectations with us and you expected they would be done. And Lord, you told us to love one another as you have loved us which means that we too should have expectations of others. But not only that, Lord, I pray that you will dig into our hearts. So not only are we willing to give expectations, but we are willing to meet the expectations, that we're willing to do what needs to be done because we understand our relationship with you. Lord, transform our hearts and minds Transform our souls, Lord, so that we're not doing this because it's hard, Lord. We're doing it because we love you, and that's the only reason why we do it. Lord, I ask that you just continue to work with us. It's not just about doing the minimal and meeting the law at its basics. It is about doing more than what the law requires. It is about doing more than what other people think of us. It is about being more than what anyone asked of us. It is about us striving after you. Change our hearts. 
change our minds, and most of all, change our souls. All of these things we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen.